Hey, this is Neil Mackay, your host of a Vietnam podcast. Now, before we get started on this episode, I wanted to share with you about one of my favorite affiliate partners, and that is Fiverr. I've been using Fiverr for years for everything from ordering YouTube thumbnails to keyword research, writing podcast articles, even to Canva designs and thumbnails and more. So whether you're a budding entrepreneur, a podcaster, or anyone in between, Fiverr has got you covered. It really is the go-to platform if you want to find freelancers offering a massive range of services to help you on any project. Maybe you need a stunning new logo or just a short animation, whatever you need, you can find it on Fiverr. What I love the most is how easy Fiverr makes it to connect with talented freelancers from around the world, all at prices that will fit whatever your budget is. Plus, with Fiverr's secure payment system, you can trust that your transactions are safe and secure. No dodgy people you meet on Facebook groups that disappear with your money and never give you what you want. What, that's only happened to me? As an affiliate partner, I will get a small commission if you use the link and at no extra cost to you. As an affiliate partner, I will get a small commission if you click my link and you buy something, all at no extra cost to you. And best of all, you will be directly supporting the making of this podcast that you're listening to for free, but it is not free to make. So why we head over to somewhere that you've probably never been before. It's called the show notes. So whatever app you're listening in, if it's Spotify or Apple Podcasts or anything at all, head to the show notes, click on my special link, and then you can browse thousands of gigs ready to help you with your next project. And now, let's dive into today's episode. Let's go. Thank you for listening to Season 7, 7 Million Bikes, a Vietnam podcast. I'm your host, Neil Mackay. For those of you that listen to the podcast regularly, you'll know that Adrian and I have been in Vietnam now since 2016, so we know how hard it can be to find English entertainment here and meet new friends. Through the podcast and our events, we're building a community of like-minded people so you can have fun, connect with others, and discover more of Vietnam. Become a member of the 7 Million Bikes community and you'll get free tickets to our events, free 7 Million Bikes face masks, episodes a day early, behind-the-scenes content and invites to special events for community members. If you join the community before the end of September and live in Vietnam, you'll get a free 7 Million Bikes face mask sent to you straight away. The link is in the show description, so check it out and join today. Thank you so much to our existing community members. We look forward to seeing you again soon. This season, we've gifted sponsorship of a Vietnam podcast to two amazing charities close to our hearts, the Blue Dragon Children's Foundation in the North and Saigon Children's Charity in the South. Please check out the links in the description to learn more about these amazing organisations and donate if you can. Don't forget to follow 7 Million Bikes on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, and I cannot believe I'm saying this, even TikTok now. Enjoy the episode and thanks for listening. 
Welcome to season seven, the first episode back from Seven Million Bikes, a Vietnam podcast. I'm your host, Neil Mackay. Today, my guest is a New Yorker. He's been in Saigon since 2010, and he's the co-founder and CEO of the Urbanist Network, which includes the well-known website Saigoneer, Urbanist Vietnam, and Urbanist Hanoi. My guest today is Brian Letwin. Thank you for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me. All right, so Brian, how's it going? As good as it could be, no complaints. You know, just pushing through. It's here in the apartment, the mini prison, but, uh, you know, full fridge. I've got my three-year-old daughter as my my play partner all the time. And, you know, get to catch up on, on Netflix series that I've been neglecting for the last uh, year or two. So we're both uh, obviously at the moment in Saigon in a lockdown situation, hence how why I'm continuing interviews on Zoom. How's it going for you at the moment? We're not going to talk about it too much, but how's things with mm. uh, the current lockdown? I mean, I guess there's the professional and the personal buckets. Professionally, you know, we're the websites we run are not subject. I mean, like the they produce what they produce and it's content and so there are departments within the company that are slower now. Let's say business development is probably one of those, you'd imagine, because a lot of our clients, restaurants, hotels, travel-related things are just very few businesses unaffected uh, by, this, especially this current wave. There are a few, luckily, so there is still work being done and client work being done, but it's not what it was before, which is probably not particularly surprising. But yeah, otherwise, one nice thing about running a business like this is you know, it, it does afford a, kind of a level of continuity and normalcy, whereas when the work is the same. So we might all be doing it remotely, but everybody's, I mean, I, we're working full days. I mean, there's no difference in effort. Like I go to bed every night and I feel like tired. Like I feel like there was a full day of stuff. And again, having a three-year-old helps because there's never a dull moment except for nap time, which is great. But no, it's, it's, it's nice for that. So I'm, I'm thankful that you know, our business is in a position financially where we're not having to make cuts and able to operate pretty normally. And then just also use it as a distraction and create some structure in the day, which I, as in my experience of, you know, over a decade ago in New York, being unemployed for a few months after the 2008, 2009 financial crisis, being, even being able to go outside at the time, it was extremely difficult to find structure and occupy myself. I don't know what that, I mean, Man, to, to kind of go through a period of solitude with with no work at all and by myself. I don't know how mentally I would have dealt or how other people who are in that situation deal with that. Honestly, I really don't know. But respect to them. Yeah, I feel for so many people right now on so many different levels. But the people I feel for the most are those with three-year-old children. <laughs> well, I would I feel I would feel a little bit worse with people who have kids a bit older because at three years old, they're just old enough to like be fun and like have a buddy and you know, like have conversations with maybe not super deep ones. We're not talking about like crypto stuff. But <laughs> you couldn't talk to me about crypto, so <laughs> <laughs> fair, fair enough. But she doesn't understand what's going on. Like in her mind, she thinks she's on an extended play date and she'll ask questions like. Well, she'll take us at our word for some things. So she doesn't ask, like, why am I not going to school? She was going to school for like five months before this lockdown. And she just says, like, school is closed. We told her that. And she accepts that as truth. And she doesn't really question it. She just thinks everything is closed. But she really hasn't quite yet. And I think we're right around the corner, though. I'm starting asking, why? Why are things closed? And that, of course, gets to be a more difficult conversation 
the, the, the really nice thing though, is she isn't complete. She's completely oblivious to like the stresses and the negativity and the, just the, you know, the scariness of, of COVID and the whole situation. And it's nice to be with somebody who just is like, wants to hang out and smile and play and listen to music and dance and jump around and watch dumb Disney movies and stuff. So um, very happy to be locked in a, in a room with her for some months. That's awesome. That sounds really good. One thing I have seen repeatedly mentioned is people appreciate being able to spend so much time with their kids at home. And especially at that age where you get to really like see the, the diff, like massive development, right? Yeah. Yeah. Everything is, you just have to kind of right, view your life as a, like there's a, usually more positive than negative, hopefully. I think most people, it's a lot of it is how you decide to look at things and stress is there and stress is more now than it is normally. Again, I'm very aware that I'm in a very fortuitous situation of having a stock refrigerator. Everybody's healthy, happy. I got my first shot last week. No, objectively, I really have nothing to complain about. And there are moments that are tough and you kind of maybe have a flashback to like, oh, I remember when I used to go outside or ride a bike or you know, to go to a movie theater and you kind of slip into like a momentary depression. But if you reflect on any kind of like on a macro level and you, know, you see where you are, you're like, all right, really though, like it's fine to have those moments. That's, that's an acceptable human condition. But, you know, it's, it's nice to have a support system here and be in a place mentally where those are fleeting moments as opposed to like pervade, you know, they're not all pervading in, in my life. So that's something to be thankful for. Yeah, no, I feel very, very similar position. Describing pretty similar for me as well. I feel very lucky, very fortunate. I have those fleeting moments sometimes on, on a daily basis, almost almost exactly like you just described. And you miss things, but then you're like, you know, yeah, it could be worse. So it's doing it's doing okay. I, I always I've been thinking about I wonder you're talking about, you know, your daughter's at the stage where she can't ask why. And I wonder how those parents cope when they do have kids that are a bit older and you have to try and explain in a way that doesn't cause panic and fear and all of those emotions, but you still also have to explain something as to, to why you're stuck at home all day. Is that anything you've done any like research into yet? I mean, I, I have a bottle because I don't need to. <laughs> Not really. I think when the time comes, we'll do it. I mean, like, it's funny. We, we live along the highway in District 2, so ambulances. So we moved in this apartment in the end of May, like June or maybe June 1st or something like that. And so the sound of ambulances has been all the time because they're going up and down the highway frequently. We've noticed that. And yeah. yeah, And and Luna, my daughter, like she just loves ambulances. Her birthday (laughs) happened like a couple weeks ago and we bought her an ambulance as like one of her presents. She has no sinister you know, like association with them for her, it's just like a, you know, a fire engine or a police car or something like that, that makes a cool noise and has lights. So there's just been weird, more like more psychological, like effects of COVID on kids that are inter- like, not necessarily in negative, but just um, very much like you grew up in, you know, in 20 years, hopefully, you know, when we talk about these things, we'll be like, oh, like you're a COVID kid, you know, like you grew up with ambulances <laughs> because you used to hear them going up and down the highway. I, I, yeah, my wife by accident once mentioned about like COVID as a thing. I think there's something outside and it's, uh, this is why we can't go outside. And my daughter associate with like a monster. And so she's like, oh, like, where's the monster? Like, and got like scared. And then we're like, all right, let's just let's not talk yeah. about it. There's no point. We're not actually going outside. So just, <laughs> <laughs> that's what I would imagine would be the kind of challenge, right? Because you don't want to create that fear of this monster or, or whatnot. 
what did you do back in New York then back in 2009, 2010 before you came to Vietnam? I graduated from university what in 2006 and immediately got my first job in digital marketing, doing like SEM campaigns and stuff like that. And then after a year or two of this, I moved to work for large agencies like Mediacom and things like that, doing digital strategy and media buying for brands like Volkswagen for their US models and stuff like that, which is very interesting in a lot of ways. Like a 20, what was I, like 26, uh, I had like $7 million budget to spend a year, which is just hilarious. As a, like, don't ever do that. And I, I mean, I know why they did, but it was, it was interesting. I learned a lot, things that especially would be helpful when starting a website. Because at that point, I was kind of learning how agencies, like people who buy media, like how they approach publishers. So kind of insider information of, of how like that industry works and what people look for. And then after doing agency stuff for a while, I, I just got burned out. It was like le- very valuable from a learning experience, but especially as when the stock market crashed, went subprime stuff in 2008, 2009, they fired like half the team to cut costs, but they didn't change the workload. So we were working oh, no. 70 hours, 80 hours a week or something, which especially for a job you don't particularly like have a huge amount of passion for in the first place, it's not very sustainable. So I, I quit the agency stuff, popped around to a couple other like freelance jobs that paid well, but like we're just, just to pay rent kind of things. And then found a couple other marketing jobs that I actually did like. One was working as like the marketing director for Style Wars, which was this documentary from the 80s about graffiti art. I and mean, it was kind of like, it's kind of known as the Bible for graffiti artists. It's like the first major film about it. And they were looking to restore the entire film, all the negatives and stuff. So there was a big push. We did all these screenings around New York to raise money to restore the negatives and things like that. So that was cool. And then moved here. So what was it like then being in New York at the financial crisis? I mean, I remember that's one of the defining moments of my life when that happened. I was in Australia at the time. You would have to be in the basically the epicenter of it must have been very, very interesting and challenging. Yeah, it wasn't like a September 11th level thing where you're like, I remember where I was and it didn't deeply affect every single person. I do remember though there being, like I mentioned, like there was this layoff push. And I remember people getting called to HR that there was this kind of thing, because it was all cubicles, right? So you'd have a floor and there'd be maybe five or six different teams on the floor managing different accounts. And if maybe some accounts were less threatened by others by the, the crisis, but I remember, yeah, there was this people, you know, would see people walking to HR and it was kind of this death walk. So I remember, yeah, like the people would get the call, like the whole floor would kind of know what was like, something was up and everybody, anybody, anybody got called in for anything. People like just assumed it was going to be the worst. And I guess sometimes it was, sometimes it wasn't, but yeah, I definitely remember like the, that feeling of, of dread and, and also not knowing how far it was going to go. I mean, I remember thinking like, oh, this was right when Obama had also, I think just become president right around that time. And I was like, oh, finally, yeah. like maybe, maybe the president will like hold accountable like the banks like the people who created this like maybe there'll be this huge reform of the american banking system and like how like bailouts work and and you know people get punished and i think in the end what i mean you can watch i think the big short or something yeah, like these, it's one these of my movies favorite where, movies yeah 
It is excellent. But then the end, right. They go through like what happened to everybody. Like this guy, there's like one, ah, they do like the fake thing. They're like, ah, like, you know, these guys all went to jail and like all this got shut down. All this legislation was passed. And it's like, actually not, none of that happened. Like one person went to jail, like nothing happened. So I remember there being some hopefulness, but that was squashed pretty, pretty quickly. (laughs) Yeah. Cause there was, I mean, so that was then the the kind of birth of the whole Occupy movement and Occupy Wall Street. And then that spread across the world. And I was, on the fringe of the Occupy Melbourne movement, which was, mm. which spread out to Australia as well. And I remember being so hopeful at that time. I thought, this is it. The financial system is changing. The world's going to get back on a bit more of an even keel. It seemed like people were becoming more aware of how money worked, where money came from, how unequal the system was, or unequal the system was. And then, and then just nothing happened, really. And that, that actually has had a massive impact on my life. Like since then, and, you know, I would have been so 28 in 2008, I was 26. So much more idealistic. We can change the mm. world. And then yeah, definitely since then, I've become much more like, yeah. I mean, if it if it didn't change after 2008, I, I cannot see how the current system is going to change at all. Yeah. So I've become uh, a, I'm equally jaded about these kinds of topics. <laughs> yeah, I've become much more. Yeah, I mean, I can see when I'm younger, people talk about students being such a force for change. And, and now I understand why, because when I was a student, you have much less to lose. You have much more idealistic, mm-hmm. passionate, energetic. You've got more time on your hands. There's tens of thousands of students. So you are this powerful block. And then as you become older, you become, yeah, more jaded. You've seen things come and go that don't change. You've got less time on your hands. You've got more to lose. You've got money invested in the stock market all of a sudden. And you're like, yeah, I don't know if I uh, need this change, which I feel hor- as a ho- I feel a horrible human being for now being that person. Yeah. I mean, you got at a certain point, realize you have to live in the world and and make you know enough money to feed yourself and to put your kid or whoever your financial dependents are in a in a not terrible financial position i mean one of the great things my parents did was we were never rich but my parents saved enough money and didn't spend money on nice cars and stuff growing up because i me and my brother graduated from liberal arts schools with no student debt that is something i'd like to be able to give if nothing else to my daughter mm. assuming that the you know that the university education system in 18 years or whatever, 15 years from now, is similar to the one that we grew up with. I hope not, because it's kind of dumb in a lot of ways. And the, the financial inlays are not worth the product that you're paying for often. I remember one thing was like, I, I've been doing, over the years, I've done so many interviews, like hiring people. And you can put whatever like university on your CV, like nobody checks these things. So if you actually mm-hmm. think of the value, of course, there's like going to a liberal arts school, you get critical thinking and things like this. Like there are definitely valuable skill sets that you learn from going to a, a good university. But at the same time, like, is it worth, I mean, by the time my daughter, like, is it worth $300,000 at the end? Mm-hmm. Probably not. Probably it's worth like $30,000 or something, which is still a lot of money. So I don't know. I'm, I'm also very jaded about education industry and the fact that maybe I have to call an industry is already a problem. <laughs> well, so I'm very fortunate. I, I'm on the cusp in Scotland anyway, where I, my education was free. So I have a four year bachelor's degree mm. uh, and I didn't pay any fees for that at all. I think it was means tested at the time. Uh, and my, I don't come from a, my family are pretty poor growing up. So I didn't pay anything for that. I did have some student loans, but that was more just for like spending money, which I pissed up against the wall and uh, <laughs> didn't, didn't do anything productive with. But 
but in terms of my fees, but even if I had to have paid fees, it would have been like a couple of thousand pounds a year or something like that at the time, which is again, yeah, 20 years ago now. So I don't know what that would be with inflation. But now, I mean, so I was on that cusp. It was a few years after I graduated, they started to bring in that you you had to pay for fees and things like that. So I don't even, you know, I kind of forget about that because I don't have kids yet about the potential for that now in the future of being saddled with these debt. Yeah, pretty much. I mean, I have friends in their 30s now who've done fine in their lives. And I'm sure I wouldn't say that they regret going to university or spending the money that they did. But like, yeah, like they, they're just every month, you know, having to throw cash into this. And it's, again, I, I think it comes down to equal value, right? So if things are priced so much higher than the value of the product itself. So I don't think there's an issue of paying for university. But the, the prices are just so out of whack. I mean, there's so many charts of like the the increase in the price of, especially in the U.S., tuition, American tuition, and the increase of wages of, and of income of, of workers. And they don't, they're not even close to each other. I mean, the gap is just so, so large. So yeah, it's, and it's gotten a lot more predatory and it's just bad and, and not regulated properly, the U.S. government. I mean, there's all been all this talk of, of Biden doing like an executive order to forgive student debt, which would be really wonderful and he should do that but he hasn't so you know let's let's see what happens but yeah long term yeah i don't know i hope that education turns into something more applicable and something that has more practical use cases in a lot of cases i mean i was a latin american history major so a lot of my degree like context helped writing you know there's skill sets within that so like learning how to write and research and, and do things like that are, are all good but that also means like probably 70% of my college experience or something, it hasn't really helped particularly. I'd rather have just paid for the 30%. <laughs> That's the thing as well that I think has gotten lost, obviously, in this hyper-capitalized society is that there used to just be that you got a degree for the sake of learning. Degree showed that you had a certain level of intellect, a certain level of dedication to something. You weren't necessarily specialized in anything, but you learn something. So I studied mm. sports science and I loved my degree. Like I loved sports science. We did psychology, biomechanics, chemistry, physiology, all of it. And I loved it. And I've never really used it. And I've probably forgotten everything, but without that degree, I wouldn't be, have gotten any of the jobs that I've gotten that are completely unrelated to sports science. I wouldn't be in Vietnam without that degree. So it's literally been one of the most important things that I've ever done still to this day but it's completely unrelated to the subject matter. And that, that's and like what you're saying, you studied Latin, history of Latin America, right? Mm. That's obviously not your profession, but you learned something super interesting. And I feel like that's another problem because with such a monetary value on your degree now, which as you're saying can be 300,000, no one's going to go and get a degree in Latin history because they're not going to make, I mean, even if you'd get a job and a degree in engineering or doctor or lawyer mm. or whatnot, the money is still not yeah. enough to pay back. So it's a shame that we're now maybe going to lose that, the, the passion for learning. Yeah, there's a lot of, I mean, beyond like skill sets of critical thinking or research. I mean, something like Latin American history, like if you study Latin American history, you learn a lot about humanity and you can also start to notice trends. So like you could say there's a, there's a lot in common with the history of Southeast Asia as there is with South America. And I mean, they're, they're part of that is the U.S., you know, what they've done, and like global 
international policy over the last hundred years or two hundred years, but also just like yeah, like humanity and and if left to its own devices and like you know just how far how it's not been that far away in in time of of like you know high levels of brutality and stuff. I mean, it's just you, you kind of understand the world and you lose some of your naivete probably from from doing it. But even though it has no direct application to what I do, you certainly kind of get a crash course on on human nature, if nothing else, which is no matter what you do in life is valuable. And to go back to your point there about Biden forgiving the debt and whatnot, what we're about to see you know, over the next kind of, I don't know, 10, 20, 30, 40 years is the biggest transfer of wealth ever in human history, right? From the, the mm. kind of boomer, boomer generation to, to their children and whatnot. And that, that would be a real shame then. How much of that debt, or sorry, that transfer of wealth is just going to go to pay towards student debt? You know, it won't be used to anything productive or helpful in life. It's like, oh, yeah, thank you. I've got all this money from mom and dad. Here you go. Mm. Pay off my student debt. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, let's move on. So what then spurred you on? How did you end up in Vietnam? I had a close friend from university who had been here for about a year or a year and a half teaching English. And he came to New York on the way back just for the summer in the US and stopped in New York on the way back to the West Coast where he's from. And it was right in that period where I quit my agency job and was kind of doing some freelance stuff. And he said, if you ever wanted to do something completely different, then this would be a pretty cool option. And he really loved being here. And I had no, I had never been to Asia before. Or I think the farthest this direction I had gotten was, well, one direction, California, and on the other, like Kenya and Tanzania, I think was the farthest east I had gone from, from, from that side. So I, Vietnam, of course, as an American, just through the lens of the American war experience for the most part, maybe I did a quick Wikipedia search for some stuff, but I came in pretty blind in terms of understanding where I was going, which is fine. I don't regret that at all. And got here and with the intention to teach English. I, I remember signing up for the ILA training course and started that after a couple of weeks of being here and like doing some motorbike trips with my friend Jake, who I just mentioned, and just kind of getting the lay of the land of things. And then I don't know, halfway through the, I think it's a one month course. I think it's a one yeah, month one to get month, your certification. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was just, well, I, I should caveat that with, I got my parents paid for the airfare. My graduation present from university was airfare and language school tuition, either learning a language or teaching a language that tuition could go towards. And that was like the way that my parents would pay for the plane ticket to, to come. So I was like, all right, that's obviously what I'll do. And then halfway through the course at ILA, I was like, yeah, I don't, I don't want to teach English. Like I, I just came to me and I didn't tell my mom or my parents until I think two years later that I never finished the course and just stopped and was like, all right, I have this experience in agency work and marketing. Um, clearly there's something I could be doing that's more in that realm than, than teaching English. Not that I looked down on English teaching. It just was, I'm not equipped for it. Like it was, I remember we were doing like the phonetic stuff where like there's the backwards E's and like, <laughs> yeah. I was just like, it, it became like math to me. Like, and I'm not good. Like math is not a good thing for, for me. I've gotten good at like arithmetic and multiplication, mostly because of business development or running a business. You need to do some like quick shorthand stuff. So I've gotten good at like percentages and basic arithmetic um, and multiplication. <laughs> but outside of that, algebra and anything above that level up kind of lost. And that's where the, that kind of got to. So 
yeah, that's how I ended up here and kind of started down that journey. So how did you support yourself then working if you, were, if you weren't teaching English? Because at that point, I, I imagine there's too many opportunities. Well, I, I had saved some money from my work in, in the States. And I remember going to the ATM for the first time here and looking at my balance and being like, oh, like, I'll never run out of money. Ever, because <laughs> if I have this many hundreds of millions of dongs in my account and pho costs 20,000 dong for a bowl, like clearly I'm good, right? Yeah. So then fast forward like two months and I had no more money, basically. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so I, I, I had met my, who would be my, eventually be my wife, like a couple months after I got here. And oh, she wow. was like my impetus to stay. Like she was my motivation factor of like not right. wanting to go home. And also there was some element of a failure of, of going back to the States after a few mm. months as well. And I'm sure, yeah, like my parents loaned me some, some hundreds of dollars. And, but I remember they came to visit as well because uh, they had never been to Vietnam before. And they were very active in the anti-war movement in the 70s. And so they wanted to, you know, it was an interesting experience for them to come here for a place that they knew so intimately through their activism. And I had, I remember that when they were here, I was applying for a, a job at the Word magazine uh, as the online editor. And that was the job. Like if I got the job, I would be able to stay in Vietnam. And if I didn't get the job, in all likelihood, I probably would have had to go back to the States. And luckily I got the job. And that was what enabled me to, to stay and kind of started my path towards well, where we are today in, in kind of directly and indirectly at the same time. Awesome. It's interesting. So it was still 20,000 a bowl of fur back, back then, 2010. It's not gone up too much. I mean, it depends where you go, I guess. My guest on the last season, Michael Brzozowski, who's up in Hanoi, he first came here, I think it was 20 years ago, and he remembers getting, yeah. getting fur for 5,000 dollars. A bowl. It's a, it's one of these things as well that people. It is obviously quite very inexpensive to live here, but people do. I saw a meme come up this week. Be like, I'm gonna go to Vietnam and live on a dollar a day, and it's like, you a dollar a day gets you like a bottle of water and yeah. a bowl of pho if you're lucky. So I think you can think it's super cheap here, but like you still spend money. Like money still goes. Like and if if it's not coming in as well, then it's gonna go go gonna go pretty quickly. So the World Magazine, I remember that I first got here just over five years ago. That that's not in existence mm. anymore, right? No, when we when I first got here, and I guess when this is universal to when you arrived as well, there were a number of, I guess, generally successful because they lasted so long. Expat mag, expat focused magazines, print magazines especially. So there was the Word, there was Asia Life, Oi Magazine had just started when you got here, I guess. And Asia Life of the Word had come from the same magazine called like Saigon, uh, Saigon Inside Out or something like that. I don't remember. And there was like a, a paradigm shift and one person went one way and did Asia Life, the other went the other and did the Word. And they, all, none of them uh, exist any longer. In fact, I think all of them but OI ceased to exist before COVID even started. OI was a casualty of COVID to some degree, it seems. But the others just never made the, the digital, the print digital leap yeah. or, or tried, but did it too late. And to go from a digital, to go from a print team to a digital team is not something you can kind of snap your fingers and do particularly easily. It's such a different world. 
Because I remember, yeah, when we arrived, finding those magazines in either bars or or wherever, seeing them about and, and being yeah. quite interesting. But I do remember, so when we got here, Saigonier was basically what people would talk about was, uh, you got to check out Saigonier. So that it's definitely, obviously, probably the most well-known expat English language, and I know it's expanded more now, but English language website in Saigon and in Vietnam. So tell us more about then, so what was... How did you go then from the world to creating Saigonia? Hmm. Well, so the word, there was, it's one of those things just as, as a person that you need to do is you kind of see what, take the good and leave the bad. So there were a lot of, from HR management to product stuff, to just getting the lay of the land of like what it is to be publishing something in Vietnam. There's a lot of nuance to that across all of those things, especially as somebody who had never done any of those things before or run a business anywhere before. But what happened? Well, yeah, the word it was it became. I mean, I left for basically. I got a, a much better job offer to do marketing for another company, and over time, the real the Saigonier started because in New York and in the West, there most cities have very hyper local content websites, and the word while hyper local and all these expat magazines, they were very much expat magazines. They were like, you know, how to drive a motorbike and how to order different kinds of suits and things like that, which were really, really valuable for your first month or two here. But after that, they didn't hold a ton of value. Maybe an article here or there was interesting and you'd read it. But other than that, you kind of didn't want to be a, so you've kind of felt like you were a tourist and that's not as a long way as you get to be a bit longer term of a, of an urban resident of a city, you want to feel a bit more of an insider than yeah. being spoken to is like, okay, I, I know how to drive a motorbike now. I don't really need to, <laughs> to read about that. And what we, what I noticed was I was finding just through research of just being an interested person. And I'm someone who likes to, I find value in learning as much as I can about the city in which I live. So in New York, I would read lots of books. I, I'm, I'm a nerd of kind of like, I like to walk down the street and imagine what buildings used to be there a hundred years ago and you know who, how things got from there to here. Yeah. Sorry to interrupt you. The fact you're just saying that literally is just Saigonier to me then. Like that's, that's literally what the content, when I see it, when I look on the website, it is exactly that. So anyway, sorry, that's really cool yeah. to, to hear that it comes from that that place. So sorry, on you go. <laughs> that's all right. And then I started finding things that I thought were really, I mean, Vietnam and Saigon have tons of layers. If you want to start going to paleontology analogies, but a lot of them, <laughs> because of the, for the reasons that there's so many interesting, a lot of them haven't been excavated because of those layers themselves, that there's a lot of personal and political and you know, just there's a lot of drama and, and negativity and positive. I mean, just a lot. There's a lot to unpack there. And because of that, a lot of them are kind of been left to lie in a lot of or, or the knowledge is dispersed in ways that are not very accessible. So I would just start to like, you know, do deep dives on certain topics. And I'd ask my foreign friends, like, do you know about this thing that I just found out? They'd be like, no, I never heard of that. Then I'd ask my Vietnamese friends, you know, hey, have you heard of this? Or like, we have no idea what you're talking about. And so then it kind of became clear that whether it was historical things or up and coming cultural things or even like a new building being built or an old building on the corner, like there was just a complete lack of, of information or documentation about all of this stuff. And I was like, okay, well, like I kind of know how to write some stuff and website things. And I'll just kind of start a blog about this. And I typed, I wanted, I think the domain I wanted was like 
Saigonist or Sai, Sai, I don't remember, something like that. And, and GoDaddy was like, nah, like somebody has that. What about this and this and this and this and this? And I was like, <laughs> oh, that's stupid. That's stupid. Ah, Saigoneer, E-E-R. That's like Pioneer. I can make that work. So completely pulled out of the ass of GoDaddy, the brand, to some extent. And that's where it kind of all, all started. And then my wife, who's Vietnamese, had lived in Spain for a while and kind of retained her interest in Spanish culture through speaking Spanish and through Latin dance and things like this. And also uh, through staying in touch with the Latin community here and the Spanish community here in Saigon. And so one of her close friends named Alberto uh, is an IT was an IT guy and was getting his master's degree here. And we just one day had some drinks and mentioned, I was like, how you doing? I told him what I was doing. And we had lived together briefly for a period earlier. And so like, I'm doing this thing. He's like, I'm also like very interested in that. So he became the IT guy and I did all the front end stuff and the writing and the social media. And then it just met a coffee shop at, at Decibel, which no longer exists. This, this is called this kind of bar and cultural space on Fanke Bin Street in District 1. Every day after work, we both had full-time jobs for like maybe eight months. And then in 2000, April 2013, a month after I got married, we launched it. And that's the very long roundabout way of answering your question, I think. No, that's awesome. That's not, I could, I could get, that's not long at all. I could listen to more. I, I thought, so did you invent the word Saigoneer? Because I assumed that that was already a term for someone who lived here. Both Saigon Children's Charity and Blue Dragon have emergency COVID appeals. The outbreak of the Delta variant is wreaking havoc on vulnerable communities across Vietnam. Families are struggling to survive. They need your help, especially impoverished children in lockdown areas. You can sponsor a COVID backpack now with Saigon Children's Charity containing food staples, hygiene necessities, books and games to a child in COVID-affected areas in Vietnam so that they know they are taken care of physically and mentally. Or in the north, you can donate an emergency food pack through Blue Dragon. It contains fruit and vegetables, rice and staples to keep children and families going. Food will be bought locally and will include a mix of fresh food and longer lasting items. For families who are hard to reach, your donation will provide a cash grant to buy food at the local market. The links to donate are in the description and if you're in a position to, please donate whatever you can. Thanks. So did you invent the word Saigoneer? Because I assumed that that was already a term for someone who lived here. Uh, we got really lucky with that. So no, it was an invented term. This term, as wow. far as everything we know, like didn't exist. Like I said, like literally GoDaddy told me to do it. And <laughs> yeah, it's it's kind of, t- it just worked naturally. I mean, there's been points now where like some New York Times articles when they interview people and about like they, they use the word Saigoneer instead of Saigonese, which is the correct term to be using. That's what I was um, going to say, though. I've used the term Saigoneer on, I'm pretty sure, on my podcast description, on the blog posts, or even just in general chat, like to describe someone from Saigon. And I didn't realize it was uh, that you guys had come up with that. I thought you'd taken that term and then used that for the website. And I love the combination with Pioneer as well. That's awesome. Yeah, it worked out. It worked out. Uh, the one negative, though, is when we started Saigoneer, there was no expectation for it to become a business, let alone something that would be expanded upon in terms of entering different markets and different languages as it has. And so 
a couple of years ago when we started Urbanist Hanoi was when we, we realized we had to have like a universal brand that was still hyper-local. So you insert, so Urbanist Vietnam, Urbanist Hanoi, even that got a little bit because we also didn't plan on doing an Urbanist Vietnam or anything in Vietnamese until COVID. But the plan was to do international expansion into Taipei and Singapore and Seoul and all these other places, which is still the plan when COVID eventually <laughs> ends. But we decided that Urbanist was a good constant brand where you could fill in the blank as well with the geography mm-hmm. as the sub-brand and describe properly the kind of content that we publish. So that's great. The problem is that Saigoneer, in reality, should it can't really conform now to that branding mm. style, which is you, fine because it, it, it has the power. We wouldn't want it to be, but it does make it a bit more complicated to explain sometimes the branding exercise of, of stuff. That makes sense. So it's so Saigoneer definitely wouldn't work in Hanoi then? You've, you've tried that? <laughs> Uh, I think the reason that you laugh explains, I think you've answered your own question. Yeah, I'm I'm joking, I'm joking. It would be pretty funny, though, if you try (laughs) be like, wait, what? Yeah, I can see that challenge because I've obviously noticed the expansion to Urbanist and and whatnot. And it does kind of just sit separate, doesn't it? The the Saigoneer, but you you can't give that up, obviously, at all. No. So, so how's that expansion been then? So t- give us more about that. How did this come from the, you know, starting off a small blog to then becoming mm. what, what you are in Saigon and, and expanding? So yeah, we started and we hoped that people would like it. And we, after a couple of years, it started to take off in terms of brand recognition and traffic and things like that. And that we kind of got overconfident about it and we quit our jobs thinking like, <laughs> if we just work full time on this, like we'll make money in no time. That didn't happen. So that took another basically like two years of just hustling a lot to just barely kind of make ends meet and do a lot of other projects to to make up the difference as well. So that got us to like 2016, 17-ish, no, I guess 2016. And we just started to make enough money at that point where when I went to the US for a summer, I hired this woman named Dana who had been the editor-in-chief of Asia Life before. And she had quit already at that point. And so I hired her just to fill in for me while I was uh, in, in the States. And uh, you know, I remember her starting. She's like, okay, where's your style guide? And like, where's your editorial schedule? I'm like, I don't know what either of those things are. <laughs> and she was like, oh my God, all right. So when I got back from the States, luckily, again, we had just enough money to where we were able to hire her because we realized like... There need there were we had no standards for anything. I mean, like we do got just far enough with me writing everything, with some freelancers and some you know some up other resources here and there, but that if we're ever going to kind of take things to the next level, somebody who was a professional editorial writer and editor to to come on board and standardize things and make a professional shop at least on that level. So we luckily were able to work with Dana, I guess, for two or three years. She was the editor in chief. And she was perfect because she was young, even though she was Canadian um, and white like us, she was fluent in Vietnamese. So she was able to kind of have that extra level of access that that I do not have. So that was a really good hire for us. And then she brought on some people who exist, who, our current deputy editor, Koi. He was an intern at Asia Life. So then she brought him over to I guess now four, four years ago, and he's made his way up and is pretty much running the show with Mike and the other editorial staff. 
but I just fast forwarded a bit. So then it hired Dana. Dana freed me up to do more business development and make more money a bit and work more on marketing. And that just kind of took off over time. Got again, more brand recognition. Also digital marketing was still kind of in its infancy here. I remember my first meetings with like the Sheraton and these kind of marketing people and them being like, all right, like what's digital marketing? And having to not just sell the website, but also sell people, you know, people who had been doing print for 15 years or whatever they'd been doing. Luckily that has changed drastically over the years. Then we just started hiring more people, more writers, more copy editors, more video people, photographers, hiring, you know, accountants and <laughs> you know, executives and things like this. And then in 2017, we raised, I guess you'd say, yeah, pre-seed round from 500 startups, Vietnam, uh, which is a major VC entity here, especially now they've gotten very big over the last few years. Um, so we were one of their early investments, which gave us enough money to expand to Hanoi and also launch a Korean language version of Saigoneer, which we currently still operate to, to market towards the Korean readers mm. in Saigon. I mean, of course, there are tons of Korean families and business people here. So that's why we, we did it for them. What is the number? Do you know the number of, uh, I would guess, I have no, there's a 10 to 20,000 or is that too much? Or Oh, no, it's higher. It's something in the realm of like 80,000 or something. Oh, well, I thought there was only like 80,000 expats total. It's, it's all over the place. I, I should caveat that with saying like the numbers are very yeah, it's hard. I've looked up before and I've are, never are found tough, an yeah. answer. Yeah, there, there is no good answer. That's just kind of based on a bunch of other numbers that I've seen kind of taking the highs and the lows and average them out a bit. Yeah. Because it's easy to, you know, from our obviously Western-centric viewpoint, but over the years you realize, well, yeah, there's a massive amount of Koreans, Japanese, Indians, and, and you see it, I think, often even in the Vietnamese media, they talk about expats. I don't mm. think they're, they're entirely including all those kind of people. They're talking about Americans and Australians and, and British people and things like that. So I've tried to kind of look at to see how many expats are there actually here because it's a massive catch-all term when these are all definitely different subcultures, not subcultures. Oh, yeah. Subcultures, subsections of the expat community, you know? Mm. Indeed. Yeah, they're completely different. The, the content we do on the Korean website is similar, is overlapping with the English stuff, but it's not the same. There, there's mm -hmm. stuff we pick and choose. Like we don't write about street food very often on the Korean website because Korean expats generally would prefer to eat in restaurants, things like this. I guess that pretty much, so that's where those other websites come from. It's also around this time that, you know, we, even though we write in English, most of our readers are Vietnamese. So it became this kind of thing, which again is from the day we started it, like it was like, we are not going to make an expat website. We, every piece of content tested will be, will somebody who grew up in Saigon find this interesting or will they feel like it's just a bunch of white people writing about Vietnamese culture on a very basic level. So to that end, you know, we try to work with Vietnamese writers as much as possible, or the expat writers that we do work with have been here for an extremely long amount of time and go in depth. It's, there's not a lot. And that's in general, what we kind of try to say is our product is that we're a premium publisher in a, in a market where there's not a lot of time or money spent on creating high quality content. This is a market of like one and done quick, you know, make as much content as possible place. So that's kind of the space we occupy. And then when we couldn't do our expansion, international expansion plans. That was the philosophy was in Vietnam. Now you have this large, a young Gen Z or, or young millennial kind of class coming up 
with, with higher spending power and they're more sophisticated, educated. You can see their demands in, in terms of like consumer products and things like that. And we thought, okay, well, then there should certainly be a space for a media entity that is also focused on premium quality and writing about things they're not able to find in other publications and that it takes a bit more of an academic kind of perspective. And, you know, we, we definitely deal with pop culture and things like that on the Vietnamese website, on Urbanist Vietnam as well, and on Saigonier. But, you know, we really try to make sure that it has some level of value and in the best case scenario, some level of social value as well. I mean, if, if nothing else, then creating a space or for, for people or for ideas or for history or, or something that wouldn't otherwise exist or have a voice. And that can only just help to enrich kind of the cultural landscape of the place. And if, if that's the best we do, then that's fine. But, you know, we don't think we're changing the world necessarily, but we're certainly trying not to detract from it. We're trying to add something, even if it's not maybe curing cancer or COVID or something like that. Yeah, I mean, we can all cure cancer, can we? I know it's difficult sometimes. You all have to have that perspective of what you're doing. You're like, but you, you just, whatever you're doing in the world or creating, you're making a difference somehow. We can't all be, you know, changing the world in terms of curing cancer or whatnot. No, but that's amazing. And it's really interesting to hear that background because as someone who has been here for since 2000. 16 uh, and even visited before then you can see exactly the philosophy coming to fruition and it's a, and you're fulfilling a good space and and providing that good information so it's really interesting to hear you describe it because that is exactly what i see on the website it's not like what you're saying They're like oh okay yeah yeah it's like oh yeah no that's definitely that's amazing and it's exciting to see as well you know for for seven million bikes has just started off as a little hobby podcast and now it's coming into something bigger and it's exciting to see that there is a there is a path to doing that i've not really thought much further ahead of next week at the moment but as as the times kind of make dictate but uh, it's exciting to see that what you guys have done and created and so and then you guys obviously have a podcast you are the og podcast in saigon you guys have been going the longest and you would have been i imagine i've always put you down as the first english language podcast in in saigon or in vietnam I think that's right. I can't, I, we, at the time that was kind of part of the impetus to begin it was of course, like Mike, our editor in chief was like, let's make a podcast. And I, I think he pitched it and it took, I think it kind of got swept under the rug for six months or something. And then sometime later it's like, yeah, like, let's just like, let's do it. And we're like, all right, like, it's fine. It, it didn't come from a place of, of like, oh my God, like let's, let's do it. It's turned into something that we're really happy with. But I think it's exceeded our expectations in terms of something that people like and a space for us to kind of uh, chat and have some fun and just kind of be ridiculous. So, yeah, we're really kind of happy. But yeah, I think we started in 2017. So at that point, I don't think there were maybe there was really one. I don't I, Yeah, honestly, I couldn't tell you if there was another or not. I don't remember. I don't think we did much competitive research at the time. <laughs> we weren't thinking about it as a product yeah, as much yeah. as just something to complement everything else. Well, I started 2019 and again, it was just a hobby and I was just looked to see what else was out there, just out of interest, not like competition yep. or, or anything like that. And the only thing I could find at the time was Saigonier. And then it's one of these things like, you know, like parallel thinking because suddenly... Mm within the space of like a few months of my podcast starting, there was like two, three, four more started up. Like there was the Bureau podcast, Creators in Saigon, mm -hmm. Falling Jackfruit came next, which I think is not is not producing episodes anymore, but they're still available. 
then there was the sexy meat talks one which is they've kind of stopped <laughs> now about that one and there was a couple a couple others i think but yeah so I, i'm just doing some research right now i'm putting out some some articles about podcasting i, I don't know if you saw i just included a, a post including the sag and podcast and i'll be in touch with you and the team shortly because i'll write up a little bit of a maybe like kind of history of the podcast or whatnot i've just written mm. one right now about the bureau so let's move on we'll move on to the final questions i always love one of the, my favorite things about a podcast is i literally we could talk all day uh, but i don't think i'm not joe rogan i don't want to do three hour podcast episodes so uh thank you so much for your time before i ask the final questions tell us what's next for saiganir and Tell us all about the urbanist. Where can they find you? Where can they look it up? Sure. So they're all the websites of the names of the things. So saigonier.com. You can also find us on all major social media channels. Urbanistvietnam.com is the name of the Vietnamese language version of our of our website. It has a different set of content a bit. And then Saigonier, on any of our websites, you, there's a toggle, a little globe icon at the top of the website, and you can navigate to all the other websites through that. UrbanistHanoi.com for, for the Hanoi site. What's next? Well, on a business perspective, you know, I'm really trying to find ways to come out of the lockdown in a, in a really good situation, so where like things are kind of done enough in the background that when the lockdowns are complete and things get opened up again, we can really rock and roll that the restart period is very short, as opposed to like starting only when things start to open up. Mm -hmm. So I'm trying to get all my ducks in a row now. So like I mentioned, like, we're currently as busy as we are normally, uh, when there is no COVID happening. Awesome. Oh, well, I'm excited to see how it goes. I'll obviously be keeping an eye on it. (laughs) (laughs) And thank you very much as well, because you've supported 7 million bike with our events this year, and you've been featuring them on, on the calendar, which is awesome. It's good. It's it's really exciting just to see our own little part being featured on such a big, big platform like Saigonia, something that I've known about since I got here. So that's that's meant a lot to me. So that's been really cool. Happy to do it. Thank you so much. And I meant to say as well, so I first met you when I popped into Eddie's one time to see Brad. And I've been cursing Brad since then because he's probably called you this. He called you, he called you Brian Lee Twin. Uh-huh. And now I can't bloody get that out of my head. I've always <laughs> known your name was Brian Letwin, but he said it to me. I'd already been talking to you about coming on the show, and he said, oh, you should have uh, Bra- Brian Letwin on the show. And I was like, I don't know who's that. He's like, you know Brian <laughs> Letwin? And I was like, I have no idea who Brian Letwin is. And he's like, you know, Saganeer? <laughs> and I was like, oh, Brian Letwin? And he's like, aha, yeah, I call him Brian Letwin. And I was like, oh, geez. So now I can't get that out of my head anytime I see your name written down. Yeah. It's amazing how often that happens, and it only happens with one demographic, which is typically like American men over 50. (laughs) I don't know what it is about it. I really have, I I couldn't even start to explain it. Luckily, Brad is a gentleman and he can can call me whatever he wants. I don't really care. That's fine. (laughs) (laughs) So we'll finish on to these final questions still. They're different for, for most seasons, so I've changed them up from the last season. And there are, we try not to talk too much about COVID, but they're a little bit lockdown-related. So number one, obviously, we are in lockdown. We can't go anywhere at the moment. We're stuck at home. This is 7 million bikes. If you could get on your bike or any bike, where would you go right now and why? So I thought about this probably more than any of the other questions on this list. Like, I'm... I'm getting older and so long road trips don't really appeal to me. So my answer is kind of based on comfort and an underrated place. I still think is underrated, which is, I really like Vung Tau a lot. It's not the best beach 
reach in the country by any stretch of the imagination. But as as a whole, it has a lot going for it. It's quiet, generally. It does have a nice coastline. There are like some cool historical vestiges to explore. The FNB scene is not particularly robust, but has some, some good stuff going for it. The seafood is incredible, which is a big deal. And it's close. It's a, just a couple hours drive. So I would, I think like, yeah, once locked out, it's just like, let's just go somewhere. Like, let's just get there as quickly as possible. I, I don't think I'd want to go to a resort or anything because that's just another, you know, like walled in. I don't want to exchange my small prison for a bigger prison <laughs> with better food. Well, maybe not even better food. I think I've been cooking a lot and I've got, gotten a lot better at cooking the last two years. But yeah, that's my answer. Vung Tao for the win. Yeah, I agree. It is underrated. And I'd heard just nothing but really negative things about it when we first arrived. And then mm. when we went, and I think, and I've heard stories that those negative opinions come from a long time ago, maybe plus five, ten years ago. I heard it was a bit, bit of the wild west down there, but it's a, it's a nice place. It's not like you say, yeah, the beach isn't great. It's fine, but I, yeah, I like it, and it's close as well. It's not, it's definitely not as bad as I think its reputation precedes it. So mm. we've been in this lockdown now on different levels for nearly three months, I would say. So June, July, yeah, nearly all of August. What's been the best thing about lockdown? Uh, yeah, two very obvious things. Time with family on a couple levels. One, the daughter, like you mentioned before, it's just great to be. That's probably the, the biggest singular silver lining of this all is that in general, before COVID, so busy all the time that I'd see my daughter for 30 minutes in the morning before she went to school. And then in the best case scenario for maybe two hours after getting home from work and being tired after work too, and things like this. And then, you know, usually say three nights a week, I'd have some after work, work thing, some client thing or some event to go to. So even then I wouldn't see her very often. And now for better or for worse, definitely for better. I, I mean, we, she wakes up at between 5.30 and I hate her for that. And <laughs> seven at the best case. And that rarely happens. My current best case is more like 6.30. <laughs> and the deal with my wife is she takes care of her if she wakes up in the middle of the night because I'm a fussier sleeper. My wife can pass out again pretty quickly. And then I am the one who puts her to bed at night. And when she wakes up in the morning, I'm the one who hangs out with her. So, and then, so yeah, wake up with her at like six or whatever go maybe take her outside for a walk for a little bit or play with her, watch some baseball because 6 a.m. coincides with East Coast baseball start times. <laughs> and yeah, make breakfast and then do some exercise in the morning and then with her, you know, until her nap time. My wife and I switch off like office hours in this room where the other person works in the living room, kind of half working, half babysitting. And then, yeah, she takes a nap for like an hour and a half. And then that takes us to like 8 o'clock, 8.30, 9 o'clock at night. And then I have like an hour or an hour and a half to watch some bullshit like we mentioned before. <laughs> and then I go to bed. I'm too tired to like stay up to like, like when I get to 11, I'm like, oh, I'm really pushing it. Uh, so, but it's great. It's, it's wonderful. She's hilarious. She's an easy kid, all things being equal, especially for someone who's not able to like go out and expend their energy, not to make a comparison, but as a dog owner, you know that like if they don't, aren't able to release some of this stuff, like it manifests in other ways. And yeah, so we put her on the balcony uh, and she does this thing called gymnastics where she goes up on the drying rack, which is like the metal drying rack of clothes. <laughs> and she just like 
like a little monkey just climbs up and down and like does these like really what she thinks is like Olympic level, (laughs) these one handed kind of like this and like, you know, have her legs out at the perfect posture for about an hour. And then she comes in drenched in sweat at like five o'clock and it's pretty, pretty great. And then spending time with my wife is also wonderful. I think we've, to our, both of our credits done a good job of respecting each other's space and, and realizing that this is a difficult time for any couple and that we have to be a little bit more lenient than we probably otherwise would with each other and each other's habits and things. So yeah, it's been overwhelmingly positive and spending also more time with my parents on video chats as well. We've been doing more of that. So whereas we used to talk to them like once a week, mm-hmm. now we talk to them like at least once a day. Oh, um, wow. Which is a big oh, that's cool. Difference. Yeah. Nice. So what on the flip side, then what's been the biggest challenge for you during this time? Uh, On the personal level, just like watching my kid not being able to like go to gymnastics class or interact with other children or go have play dates or go to school or, you know, to spend time outside and be a kid. That's, that's hard. I think it's Mm. harder for me and my wife because we know what the potential could be compared to Luna, who is again, just like kind of unaware of things. She's just happy to hang out with us and you know, pretty occupied just playing with crayons and things generally. The other artists, it's just work. Like we're, our company has done a really good job and our staff of, of, you know, being professional and maintaining their output and being like, we don't micromanage at all. Like we have weekly check-ins for editorial and social media and like different things like this, but everybody, despite the mental challenges that everybody has throughout the company, living with their parents or the significant others, have done a good job of plowing through. But at the same time, we're a very family-oriented company in that we see each other like, I have a feeling, I don't know if they'd admit it or not, that a lot of our staff, the company overlaps as like their more immediate friendship circle as well. And I feel like that way, as much as a, a boss can, like I, I try not to, you know, to be aware of that kind of, you know, you have to, if you have to make tough decisions, you can't be friends with everybody. Luckily, our staff are so good and senior in the way that they think and might self-manage themselves that I've been able to kind of become more friendly with them because the, the times where you'd have to be like, sit down and have a serious conversation, like don't really exist very often. So the need to like, have to like, oh, well, if I have to be a dick about something, I need to like, not be as friendly with them to their credit. Like they, they've made it so that that kind of situation never really occurs. So thanks to them, I guess, for letting us kind of be friends and a family together and, and have that, that mutual respect for one another. So not being in the office and hanging out, having beers after work and just having these conversations and, you know, trolling each other in person. <laughs> and we do it online, but it's more fun to troll in person than digitally. <laughs> that's, been, that's been difficult. And I, I just, I miss, I miss those guys so much. Talking on Slack does not replace the inner, the mm. human interactions. Shit, I mean, I even miss my clients at this point. Like, yeah. So you've been here now, obviously, a long time, 2010, over a decade. What has shocked you the most about Vietnam? Yeah, I think your next question is what surprises. So right, it's shock and surprise. And my answer is kind of the same to both of them, which is at this point, I spent like 30% of my life here. This is normalcy to me. So nothing really shocks or surprises me anymore. I, I, I tried to think of this when I saw the question when you wrote it down. It was like, if I was from... Cleveland or something, and I moved to Detroit. And, you know, like, would anybody ask that question? Like, it's like, no, I mean, like, it's just, it is the new normal of life. And, oh man, I, that has entered my lexicon. Luckily, I'm not applying that to a COVID related thing. 
but yeah, it's, it, I, I'm not really, I'm not really shocked or surprised by anything anymore. Maybe that's what's shocking and surprising is that this is normal. <laughs> like that's somewhere this far away from where everything started is now my home way more than what I associate New York with. Yeah. Well, I guess the, the, well, I'll ask you a, a follow-up question, but in 10 years, life has changed so immensely here because I know how much it's changed in five years. And my wife and I were talking about this, this just this week. When we first moved here, I remember she asked her sister who lived here, what, what, what are we going to miss? What do we need to like eat before we get here? Mm. And she was like, wine and cheese. You need to eat wine and cheese before you come here. And this was five years ago because it wasn't really that common. Now, though, sure. I can buy some nice cheese at Vinmark. The wine, there's wine, depending on how much you want to spend. You can get decent wine anywhere as long as it's not Dalat wine. So I guess that that's interesting. Your answer, though, that nothing shocks you anymore, because I'm sure when you first arrived 10 years ago, what, what shocked you the most then 10 years ago or 11 years ago when you arrived? Oh, man. Maybe <laughs> the driving situation. Not, not like the busyness of like, oh, crossing the street. I mean, certainly that had its own, the first couple of weeks I was here, like, holy shit, like how don't people die? Sure. <laughs> I think everybody goes through that. Uh, I yeah. think people coming f- from the Mekong Delta also feel that way. Maybe when they come to live Saigon for the first time too, I don't <laughs> yeah, probably, think that's a, yeah. a Western thing necessarily. Probably kind of a lack of structure coming from America where everything is pretty, there's not a lot of opaque social stuff like everything is kind of set like you walk on this part of the sidewalk and you drive this way down the street or you are allowed to do this or that or if you don't you get ticketed really quickly everything was just a bit more casual here and still is i I think overall things some things have been formalized more than others i remember the food thing that there was it was hard to get a hamburger or burrito you know there's like very specific places to get these things parmesan cheese things like this now no, I, I don't think there's any product. Like, because I, I, I measure it based on what I would bring home from the States when I'd visit. Mm-hmm. I'd go to the shopping and I'd bring cheese and canned artichoke, you know, hearts or things like this. I to cook. Now I'm thinking, because we're thinking of going to the States for a few months in the, in the near future. And I'm thinking from a food perspective, what we would bring back, probably a few things that are still available here, but the price is triple or quadruple mm-hmm. than they are in the States. So it's yeah. more of a, mo- a monetary thing than not being able to find it. <laughs> Um, well, yeah, because we've got oh, like a cheese puffs right now, which are just so delicious. Mm-hmm. It's like a lockdown treat. But like it was just yesterday, I think they're about 100,000, 110,000. And I was saying to Adrian, you know, we're not spending money on anything else. I'll buy as many bags of cheese puffs as I want because yeah. that's like the price yeah. of one beer. But she made the caveat. She's like, yeah, but you're still paying like two or three times as much as what you would ever pay in the US for it. So if you do go, please bring back a box of cheese puffs. <laughs> cheese puffs, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so- unfortunately, like wine has been one of those, my cheese puff equivalent. We have a friend <laughs> who runs a Spanish wine importation company. And because all of his customers used to be restaurants, now he's just doing, nobody's buying that anymore on wholesale. So he's been selling all his wine at like 50% off. That is like distributor prices, I guess. And yeah, I mean, we're still paying double or triple for the wine that you would get otherwise. But, you know, I, I, I kind of like you just said, like, I'm not, we're not spending money on other stuff. What else do I kind of have to live for in this kind of like reward, instant reward kind of way? Of course, my daughter, you know, objectively, my daughter at life is great. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but yeah. Um, like at the end of the day, when you're like finished work and you're like, oh man, I just want something. And food, food is also that. 
food is great, but not quite as much as something that's, you know, mind altering and a bit farther down in my life where I don't really partake in any of the other mind altering things. So <laughs> wine is my, my current vice. And I've even tried to, I was at like a bottle of wine a day with the beginning of lockdown. Cause I was like, fuck it. It's a party. Like, let's do this. And after like a month, it was like, that's getting really expensive. And I'm definitely an alcoholic now. So <laughs> I've, I've, I've gotten it down to two or three days a bottle, which I, I find to be a successful <laughs> intake. No, you're, you're 100% not alone on that because uh, so our, our equivalent has been cocktails. So we, we don't like drink a lot of cocktails out, but we like to have the odd, and we are, we're happier people. We like to go out for a happy hour and we'll go to 86 yep. proof or whatnot. And we'll have a, you know, an espresso martini or a Negroni or a martini or margarita sorry and so we we missed all of that in the beginning so at the beginning of this lockdown we we bought in a whole bunch of liquor which we normally don't really have liquor in at all maybe one bottle of whiskey and it'll sit in the cabinet yeah. for a few months but we stocked our cabinet full of like you know and nothing nothing really expensive just all the basics but like gin vodka tequila whiskey uh, everything rum which is still there because we don't drink rum but so our thing was making like Negronis and espresso martinis and things like this at home. And similar to you, yeah, we were like afternoon. It was like, well, might as well just have a drink. It was like you said, a big party. It's like I didn't think it was going to go on for much longer than a month. And then, yeah, it got to that like month stage and it's like, okay, I'm drinking way too much now. Like this is, yeah. this is not like it was fun in the beginning, but now I need to, <laughs> I need to cut back on that so you could we could just see i mean now we, we're just back to almost like normal levels like have a have a little drink at night or whatnot maybe once a week have a little bit more but not uh not the levels in the beginning where it's like yeah we're home let's just have a party <laughs> yeah yeah I, I think i realized like it was really potentially getting bad when i got my first covid jab and i was feeling pretty shitty the first three days after getting it because and i stopped drinking also during that period as well yeah and, you know, like in day two, I was like, like really feeling pretty bad. I was like, you know what? Like, man, this is getting to me. And I thought, well, maybe you're just going through alcohol withdrawal <laughs> because uh, there's a show called Always Sunny in Philadelphia, which is if I was going to have like a Bible uh, kind of text in my life, that would be it. And there's an episode where they all go through, like they stop drinking and they're all alcoholics and they all get like really sick. And then one day they just like, you know, one of the characters like goes there and they're like locked in the bathroom for quarantine in this episode. I'm not going to go further into the plot line, but one of them is like, oh, I hide like alcohol under the sink at the bleach container. And they're like, you're an alcoholic, they're like whatever. And they all start drinking and they go from like all being on the edge of death to like the next scene is all of them just like hanging out. They're like, yeah, I feel like really good. And it's like, we haven't been sick at all. We just have, we're just alcoholics. So. <laughs> and and as I said, it's not just you because I've had this conversation with several people, even when I took the dog out, you know, and just briefly had a conversation with another dog owner. And he said the exact same thing as well. He's like, yeah, I realized the same as you. He's like, I went through like a bottle of wine a night and I, we were getting into Aperol spritzes and we were making like afternoon Aperol spritz. And then but the same thing about the same timeline after about a month was like, okay, we need to, we need to calm down. So I think anyone I've spoken to, I think we've all kind of gone through the same the same process. So thank you so, so much, Brian. It's been awesome. This has been a long time coming. It's been great to catch up. Yeah. Really, really good to hear about Saigonia. Really inspiring as well. And um, for me, as someone who's pushing forward with 7 million bikes, it's great to have you on. It's good to have a chat. And I hope that you and the family are doing well. It's really, it sounds like you guys are doing well and you've kind of got a good attitude, same as me. It's tough, but you know, we, we it's not, it's not the end of the world.
too tough. So hopefully we'll get through this. We'll come out soon on the other end and we can catch up for a, a proper drink in person at Eddie's with Brad and uh, he can butcher your name. Fantastic. Looking forward to it. And thanks for having me. You're very welcome. Cheers. Thanks for listening to this episode of 7 Million Bikes, a Vietnam podcast. We hope you enjoy hearing our guest stories. If you haven't already, please make sure to subscribe to the show and turn on notifications so you never miss a new episode. Thank you so much to our producer, Lewis Wright, for making sure the show sounds as good as possible for you. And also a big thanks to the 7 Million Bikes community members and everyone who supports us. Don't forget, if you haven't already, you can join the community today. The link is in the description and you'll get free event tickets, free 7 million bikes face mask and invites to special member events. Also follow us on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube and I'm still ashamed to say this, TikTok. Most of all, if you can, please donate to Saigon Children's Charity or Blue Dragons Children Foundation's COVID appeals. Remember, we have six seasons of stories to share with you, so check them out if you haven't already, and we hope you can listen to future episodes too, so you can laugh, connect, and discover. Cheers! I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you're like me, you may use your laptop at places where you have to use public Wi-Fi. This opens you up to digital snoopers. It's a massive problem. It can be your internet service provider, or you know who, looking at what you do online, or a cyber criminal trying to steal your bank passwords or credit card info, or even a hacker at the next table trying to steal your sensitive data. These days, it is vital that you keep your data safe. NordVPN keeps all of these snoopers away. It makes your internet activity private, protects you from accessing dangerous websites that are fishing for your data, and lets you enjoy your favorite content securely, even while away from home. And it's easy to use, even I could use it. I've actually been using NordVPN for years now here in Vietnam, and I'm excited to be an affiliate partner with them. I've used NordVPN to watch Netflix, BBC, Disney Plus with ease. And I also know that my information and data are safe from prying eyes, whoever they may be. Join now and you'll get 68% off and three months free when you go to my link, nordvpn.com forward slash SMB. Just again, for those hard of hearing, nordvpn.com forward slash SMB. The link is also in the show notes. I know nobody checks them out, but go check that out and you can get the link from wherever you are listening to this podcast. As an affiliate partner, it also means that I will get a small commission when you sign up, but at no extra cost to you. So not only will you be getting a great deal through 7 Million Bikes, you get a great VPN and you'll be supporting 7 Million Bikes podcast. Stay safe online and enjoy the shows you love. Any questions, just let me know. You know how to get in touch with me. And thanks for listening to this show. Cheers. <laughs> <laughs>